finding their seats and settling down. Just a reminder that we changed our uh, <clears throat> picnic to this coming Saturday, April the 14th. Now, how many of y'all have been watching the weather and the long-term forecast for this weekend? It looks like second verse, same as the first, but right now it doesn't look very good. looks like another front's due in Friday night. It's going to bring a lot of rain and cold, windy, rainy weather on early Saturday morning, which, of course, will just wash things out. So uh, <clears throat> we'll see. We'll let you know what decision we make by Thursday night. Also, on the March of Remembrance, we emailed out the information on that uh, yesterday morning. So you should have that. You can sign up for it. It gives you the, the website. You can get the information where to go, where to park at uh, at Rice University, and then it's not that long of a walk over to uh, Temple Emmanuel from there for the um, <clears throat> for the march. Also, details are coming together on the D.C. trip to the Museum of the Bible. We'll probably be sending out some uh, last-minute changes, information. I've been in contact with Senator Cruz's office the last since yesterday. Still waiting to hear from uh, from Congressman Gomert. And then um, also details with the hotel. So everything's coming together. Just be in prayer that everybody uh, can get there, arrive safely, and all of those travel issues. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer. And then, uh, if you need to, confess sin and be prepared to worship the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together this evening, that we can spend time before Bible class in prayer and bringing before your throne of grace the needs of those in this congregation. Father, we continue to pray because there's a couple of people who still are not back in their homes following uh, the flooding from Harvey. There's still some folks with uh, some minor uh, financial, in some cases major financial problems. We pray that you'd supply those needs. Father, we continue to pray for a number of people who have had surgery or will be having surgery in the next week or so. We pray for them and the doctors and wisdom and that they will do well in their surgery. We pray, too, for the outreach of this congregation through Dean Bible Ministries, through other uh, means as we pass out tracts and give literature. We pray that you would use that to uh, bring people to a knowledge of your word to be to pique their curiosity and their desire to know the truth father we continue to pray for our nation pray for our leaders from the national level all the way down to the local level that you would raise up men and women who understand the principles of biblical truth and the constitution of this nation that we may continue to be a free people and father we pray that tonight as we study your word we can come to a greater understanding of the issues that we study in christ's name Amen. <clears throat> All right, well, we are continuing our study in Second Samuel, but tonight I really want you to turn in your Bible to First Chronicles chapter 15. First Chronicles chapter 15. First Chronicles 15 tells us, actually 15 and 16 tell us a lot more about what was going on at the time that uh, David is moving the ark into Jerusalem. 
15 starts off with his second attempt to move the ark into Jerusalem. And uh, chapter uh, 13 and 14 dealt with the first uh, mistake and problems. And so it's important for us to look at this expanded uh, revelation that we have because there are some important and valuable lessons for us uh, spiritually. And it, all of this relates to a most misunderstood doctrine today, and that is the doctrine of worship. And what we see here really is a development on David's part of the corporate worship of Israel. That is not the personal worship of each individual believer, but what should happen, what our uh, goal should be in terms of corporate worship when the body of Christ comes together. We learn these principles from what was uh, done in the Old uh, in the Old Testament. So we'll look at preparation from worship, and then what we'll see in this particular chapter is the development of the great Levitical uh, musicians, the orchestras and the singers and the organization there and the implications of that for understanding, as I said, a most misunderstood doctrine today, which is corporate worship. So just by way of review, we see in 2 Samuel that there's these three divisions Chapters 2 through 10, where we see God blessing David, the expansion of David culminating uh, with his, uh, with the great Davidic covenant and the implications of that for Israel's future on into eternity and the rule of the greater son of David, the Messiah, on the, on the Messianic kingdom. That is followed by David's uh, great sins with Bathsheba, his conspiracy to have her husband killed, and the confession and then his recovery where God disciplines David, but because of David's humility, submission to God, his confession, God transforms that cursing into blessing. He doesn't take away the punishment, but he, David is able to endure the punishment through the uh, use of scripture and promises, and therefore it is used by God to uh, further develop his spiritual growth. And then the end of the book deals with these six different episodes related to God's, are the uh, promises of the Davidic covenant. And we're looking at Second Samuel 6 with the uh, ark being moved from um, Kiriath-Jerim to into Jerusalem. We've looked at the first part of that which was not done correctly. We looked at the history of the ark several weeks ago as uh, God shows that he's perfectly capable to take care of himself and to provide for himself. The ark was captured at the battle by the Philistines at the Battle of Aphek. It's taken into enemy territory, and as it were, they attempted to make God a prisoner of war, but God wouldn't have anything to do. He didn't want to cooperate, and as they tried to uh, put God as a captive under the control of Dagon. Uh, it is Dagon, the idol that is falling down, prostrate to worship God, a great picture of what worship really is. But what we learn from the scripture is that God has a way in which we are to worship him. He sets down the protocols. Worship is objective 
It is not subjective. What do I mean by that? Objective means that worship follows certain principles of Scripture that no matter how we feel, if we go through those, those stages, then we will be worshiping God. Emotion will follow, but, but we're all um, susceptible to emotion. We live in a culture that has idolized emotion. If you reject reason and intellectual activity as having anything to do with understanding God or finding meaning and purpose in life, defining the, the purpose of life and where we're headed, then, then the only thing you're left with is emotion, and emotion becomes a criteria for everything. And we see this every day. If you think about that as an interpretive grid for understanding what's happening everywhere from the White House to Sacramento, from Austin to uh, North Dakota, you see that th this nation is being ruled by emotion, no longer by people who are thinking objectively and, and rationally. Um, so we looked at the fact that God lays down certain rules. Let's just review these. First of all, in Numbers 4, 5, we're told that it was the Aaron and his descendants, the Levitical priests, that were responsible for carrying the ark. There were specifics that were described. There was the uh, veil that of the screen that was taken down and was to cover the ark of, of the testimony, the ark of the covenant with it. And that it was then that was covered by uh, the porpoise skin, which was a, a heavier. Some say it's a badger skin. There's debate over the meaning of that word, but it was a thicker, more rugged uh, uh, animal hide. So that covered the ark. It was not open to prying eyes. People were not to gaze upon God. This is the throne of God between uh, the cherub. So it was off limits. To people that emphasizes the uh, uniqueness of God and the, the, the holiness of God. Exodus 25:15 tells us that there were these poles that were to be permanently kept with the ark and they were not to be taken from it so it was to be carried not by people reaching and grabbing the ark itself but by picking it up by the poles and transporting it that way. And then in Deuteronomy 10.8, we're told that uh, the tribe of Levi was to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and in Numbers 7.9, specifically the descendants of Kohath. Now, we're going to look at the genealogy of, the, of Levi and the main tribes, but Kohath was one of three sons. There was Gershon and Merari. Those were the three main sons of Levi, and the primary tribe that has... Um, are, are the primary, the son that has a primary emphasis in the descent are those who are descendants of Kohath. Not that there aren't others who served, but uh, Amram, who is the father of Aaron and Moses, is a descendant of Kohath. You have others who we'll see are the heads of these uh, clans of Levitical priests are descendants of Kohath. So this is the the, the primary line, and it is through the tribe of Kohath or the clan of Kohath that they were to carry, the priests were to carry the ark on their uh, shoulders. We looked at the geography here, that this line here, this is when the 
Philistines brought the ark down to Timnah, put it on a cart that was taken by a milch cow. It's taken to Beth Shemesh. They had a little celebration and got too close and familiar with the ark, and they came under divine discipline. And then they called upon those in Kiriath-Jerim. And Aminadab, who is a Levitical priest, said kept at his house until the time of David. And virtually it's forgotten and ignored during the time of Saul before it is brought by David to Jerusalem. So what we saw in those first 11 verses in 2 Samuel 6 was that God demonstrates that he is holy. He's in control. He doesn't need any help. When the cart that was carrying the ark is hit a hole or a bump and was jostled, when Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark, he is it's the text uses a word that is more serious than simply touching it. He is treating it irreverently. There's more going on there. We don't know what, but there's more going on there than simply the fact that he reached out and touched it. He seems to be looking at it. He seems to have peered under the covers, perhaps something like that, where he has treated the ark in a blasphemous, irreverent manner. And so as a result of that, we saw that God took his life immediately. And the response from David is anger and fear. And last time we traced that through the scripture to show that what God does to Uzzah here is not out of character for God, number one. Number two, it doesn't show that God is just some harsh, arbitrary judge that just randomly and harshly punishes people, but that this is a pattern in the way God is to be treated by his creatures, that he is not, uh, in the words of the familiar hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus, where we have made God uh, just our familiar buddy in our very informal culture, but that God is to be treated as the creator of the universe, that he is to be treated with respect and with awe bordering on great fear because we know that there are uh, horrible consequences when uh, his character is violated and when his... uh, when his... Uh, protocol for handling the ark is violated. And so that is what uh, David is angry because David is is doing this his own way. He's not following the protocol of scripture. And what God is showing here is that man doesn't control God. God is loving. God cares for us. God provides for us. He's gracious. He's generous. But never think that you're in control of God. God is the one who is in in control. David, in Psalm 119, 120, says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. See, this is the attitude of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom that's repeated in the Psalms, and it's repeated in Proverbs, that we are to treat God with great, great respect. And then I concluded last time with this statement in in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves. You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God is a holy God. He is totally unique, totally distinct. There, he is the creator. If you go and you look at the pagan religions, they're all very similar. The God of the Bible, or the God that they worship, is not... Uh, is is um, is part of matter. He's he is <clears throat> the gods of the pagans is part of the system. He is uh, often made the the world the universe is made out of the body of a god that is killed in some primordial combat. But matter is eternal, much like we have in modern uh, evolutionary theory. And yet, in the scripture, there's this juxtaposition that occurs. For example, when when Abraham goes after he defeats the uh, <clears throat> the Keter Laomer alliance in Genesis uh, chapter 14, when he is returning to Jerusalem, he sees uh, Melchizedek, who is a priest of El Elyon, the mighty God, who's the maker of heaven and earth. That is. That is something that is profound because none of these other kings were worshipped a God that was the maker of heaven and earth. They did not have the, that creator-creature distinction that was understood by, by Melchizedek. So Abraham knows that this is someone else who worships the true creator God uh, of Genesis chapter 1. He is distinct in his righteousness, his unique in his justice, in his love, in all of his attributes. There's nothing like God. And so he is to be treated as <clears throat> someone who is totally other, totally uh, separate. So now we come to what happens on the second attempt to take the ark into uh, into Jerusalem, and the full a fuller account is given in First Chronicles fifteen and sixteen, and so I want to look at that, and we'll go back and forth between the two chapters eventually. But but initially, I want to talk about this preparation that takes place. This is a a ceremony of great pomp and circumstance. We live in a culture since the sixties that has glorified informality and has reduced things to the lowest common denominator. And this is something I've mentioned many times, that uh, great observation by a world-class historian by the name of uh, uh, Arnold Toynbee made the observation at the beginning of the 20th century that in a culture that is in the ascendancy, and he's analyzed, he, he wrote a multi-volume series on the history of the world, and he notes that cultures that are ascending, that are developing, that are growing, and that are becoming more sophisticated, that the the uh, lower socioeconomic groups are imitating those who are successful. They look up to them. They want to emulate them. They want to be successful themselves, so they want to dress like those who are successful. They want to talk like those who are successful. They want to listen to the kind of music of those who are successful, and that shapes them. But what Toynbee also recognized was that a culture in the descent, in decline, you have the upper classes imitating the lower classes. They're going to follow the fashion trends of those 
uh, in the ghetto, those who are impoverished, those who uh, are not well educated. They are going to let the lower socioeconomic classes uh, dictate uh, music styles, and they're going to dictate uh, fashion styles and tastes and trends and things of that nature. And so it shows the corruption that occurs in every civilization in human history has gone through these cycles where they have gone from uh, is, uh, being defeated and being enslaved and being uh, downtrodden by other nations up to the point where they have freedom and they are uh, have some sort of, of great success, and then they don't pass the prosperity test, and then they go through uh, the decline. And you've heard uh, many people at different times talk about these cycles of civilization, and that's what takes place. And, um, and so what we see here is that as Israel is in the ascendancy, that they are developing... Uh, and and through David and through Solomon, they are developing these these uh, categories, these styles for corporate worship involving organization and preparation and and music, so that it will all come together at a at a cultural high point for Israel to present a magnificent form of worship. Uh, to glorify God, and so it we see it beginning here and being developed in First Chronicles 15 in a way that it's not in Second Samuel uh, 6. So we'll look at this, and the, basically this chapter is broken down into four four sections. In the first three verses, we learn about um, the second attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and David. Um, goes to the scripture for correction. In other words, what we see here is the leader of the nation is willing to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. He is willing to go back to the scripture and say, I failed, I made a mistake, I disobeyed the Lord, I violated the scripture, and he is going to recognize his failure and then he is going to correct that failure so that there is success. It shows a genuine humility on the part of David. His initial reaction is one of anger. Uh, we typically get angry when we don't get things, let things go the way we want them to. And he had uh, developed this ceremony to bring the ark into Jerusalem initially. And then this horrible thing happened with Uzzah. And he's brought up short and he's angry. And at the same time, there's fear. And often uh, that happens to us if you analyze your emotions at times. That that's what you will experience is when something happens that's totally unexpected, that stops you in your tracks, or you don't get uh, things the way you want. You're angry, but the, the, also at the same time, often there's some fear mixed with that because now you don't know what to do, and is this just going to lead to some some mighty collapse? So what David does is what David has done over and over again, and that is he goes to the Lord in prayer, he goes to the to scriptures, and now he is going to fully implement what the scriptures have revealed as to how the Ark of the Covenant is to be handled. As a result of that, he is going. He recognizes the Levites are the ones who are to be in charge of the transportation of the Ark, 
And so he is going to organize them in ways that they perhaps have not been organized before. Now, there has been an organization. If we were to take the time, we could go back to Leviticus and Exodus and see how God was very specific on how the Israelites were to march through the wilderness. Every tribe had to be in a specific location. And then, and they surrounded, the 12 tribes surrounded the uh, tabernacle, the Levitical priests that were were in the center, and that the ark, those who were carrying the ark, would lead the nation as they went through the wilderness, and, and specific people were assigned the responsibilities to carry each thing. So it is, there's an organization there. But now that they are settled in the land, there hasn't really been a revelation as to uh, how, what they are to do and how they are to uh, carry out a more permanent um, form of leading the nation in worship and God uh, and their their walk with the Lord. Uh, remember, after they came into the land, after the initial conquest, they set up the um, they set up the tabernacle about twenty miles or so north of Jerusalem at a place called Shiloh. It is in the mountainous area of the uh, what becomes the northern kingdom, what is known as Samaria, or, uh, and it is there that, that they worship. In fact, you can go, to, uh, you can go there today. Uh, it's very interesting, fascinating to go to the archaeological area of Shiloh because later on there were some other uh, <clears throat> villages, towns, things that were built there uh, that uh, were in the intertestamental period and, and later. And so you can go up in a, in a high tower. Uh, you, know, you know, if you go to uh, some areas where there's a heavily forested area in this, in this country and some of the national forests and national parks, they'll have one of these high towers where you stand up and they watch for fires and watch for smoke. It's that kind of an observation deck. And you can go up there and you can look around, and it's very rugged. And it's like the hill country here in Texas, and you have these uh, rather steep sides, and the, the hills come down. It's not mountains like you have in Colorado, but you have these hills that come down, and there's really no place that's flat except one area. And it's abnormal. You look at it and you realize that it has been flattened by humans. And if you go over and measure it, it is the dimensions of the tabernacle. And they have excavated there, and they have found some very ancient uh, artifacts there that document the presence of, um, of the tabernacle there for over 300 years. This was where the tabernacle was, was located. But remember, when they had the first battle of Aphek back in 1 Samuel 4, and they took uh, the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm to give them victory over the Philistines. The Ark got captured. And then the question is, what happens to the tabernacle? And actually, the tabernacle is brought down in, brought down to Gibeon, and it is set up there. So it's continued, but the Ark wasn't there, and the Ark is separate. And now what David is going to, going to do is 
uh, reunite the Ark of the Covenant with the uh, tabernacle there. But he's not going to take it to Gibeon. He's going to provide a temporary place because eventually what he his vision is is to have a permanent dwelling, uh, permanent dwelling for God. So he's moving the ark, and he and he has learned too that not only does he have to have organization of the Levites in in doing this, but that um, uh, they've lost that organization over the time that the ark was was not at Shiloh, and then it was as they moved the temple. There's still temple service. Remember, you have all the story about uh, Eli and Samuel and all of those things, but it's after that that it just seems to to fall apart during the reign of Saul. So <clears throat> David has to reorganize the Levites, which is what part of this is covers in verses 4 through 10, and then he realizes that according to the law, they have to be prepared spiritually. They have to be ritually cleansed in order to supervise the worship. And so they can't just uh, do whatever they want to do. There are specific guidelines in the law as to how they are to conduct themselves. And then David is going to do something else in the last part of the chapter from verses 16 to 26, is he's going to organize and develop the musical worship of the Lord. Now, there's been musical worship before. We can think of the uh, psalm of Miriam as the song of victory over the Egyptians back in Exodus. We can think of the uh, psalm of uh, Deborah uh, after she and Barak have uh, defeat the Canaanites in Judges chapter 5. And we can think of the, uh, the, the hymn that Hannah writes in First Samuel chapter 2, the psalm that she writes there. So there's music and there's psalms, but we don't have the, the development and the sophistication until David comes along. And so this is a great example to us of how a believer can take and develop something uh, within the framework of what God has revealed. And it's important to think about this with David because David does this in a very structured and orderly manner. I've gone through many Psalms as we've gone through, as we've gone through First Samuel, and there's structure and order to those Psalms. It's not just free verse or people just writing whatever they want to. They follow certain structures and certain patterns because God is a God of order and God is a God uh, of structure. So this is First Chronicles chapter 15. And the first section, therefore, is we're going to talk about what happens after David fails to bring the ark into Jerusalem the first time and how he goes to the scripture for correction. To, but to begin with, I want to go through some introductory principles of corporate worship, things to look for. And I want to start this. Uh, somebody had posted on my... Uh, Facebook page, a critique of some church in uh, in Florida. It doesn't matter what the church is, but I looked at this critique, and it was very interesting. Doesn't matter, like I said, doesn't matter what the issue was that they were ultimate issue was that they were critiquing or the problem there in this one church, but it was what they described about the what happens in the worship of this church. 
is what happens in about 80% of churches today. We've gotten this ecumenical form of worship, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Methodist, a liberal Methodist, a conservative Baptist, whether you are a ritualistic uh, Roman Catholic or whether you are a freewheeling charismatic. What has been happening over the last 40 years is a major shift in the music of the church, which in my opinion has contributed greatly to the dumbing down of Christianity and to the destruction of uh, of doctrinal purity. I remember first time really seeing this was in the late 90s. We'd gone up to Connecticut, and you would see a number of churches, and they would have signs out that would say something about um, contemporary service Saturday night, contemporary service Friday morning. And it didn't matter if it was a Lutheran church, Presbyterian, a Congregational, a Roman Catholic church. They were all having these contemporary worship services, and they're all singing the same songs. Now, back in for many centuries, if you went to a Roman Catholic church, you did not sing the same hymns that you sang at a Presbyterian church. And if you went to a Baptist church, you would not sing the same hymns that you would sing in a charismatic church. Some would be similar, but there were many that were were different. Still today, it, it somehow jars me. And I have seen this about three times now at a Roman Catholic church where they sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's just like... How can you sing a hymn written by Martin Luther that extols the greatness of God when fundamentally you disagree with everything the man stood for and wanted to uh, take his life? I mean, this, but what this reveals is we don't think there's any real significance to either the music or the content of the lyrics anymore. So we just sing it because it's traditional and therefore it feels good or it's contemporary, whatever, whatever, whatever it might be. So anyway, this writer of this, this article about what's going on in this, uh, what I would call a generic non-denominational evangelical church that is really slipping into heresy, but, but what he writes says that this church in Jacksonville, Florida, is a type of church in the fashion of, and mentions another church, what they loosely refer to as a, quote, rock and roll church. The worship music is an endless series of repetitive choruses designed to pay attention. This is, I thought this guy really nailed it in the way he, he describes this. Designed to get the listener into an ecstatic state where feelings are in the forefront. And the critical thinking areas of the brain are disengaged. The music is loud, very loud, with laser lights and smoke machines to complete the effect of being in an MTV music video. Now, if you haven't been to one of these churches, there's a lot of them now. In fact, uh, one of our um, former deacons who moved away was invited by uh, some friends to a church service, and they went just out of okay, we'll go, try, we'll go see what goes on. And th- they were just amazed because, see, what happens is y'all are sheltered. You've been sitting here listening to me teach, 
in a what is called a traditional church service for I don't know how long, and you haven't been out there among the pagan Christians. And there's a lot of pagan Christians, which is why they're so impotent spiritually. And and what the feedback I get is they really do this. Yeah, they really do it, and they do it everywhere. We are like an island of spiritual sanity in a sea uh, of pagan emotional ecstasy that has nothing to do with the Bible. And and th- this couple that was from our church went, and they started to pray, and all the lights went down, and it got dark. And then the smoke machines come on, and you have to create this atmosphere because, you see, worship is a matter of creating atmospherics. It's drama. Uh, you, you don't see any of this in the Bible. You don't see any of this when Jesus is praying for the, with the disciples. He doesn't cause the sun to dip down and get darker. And, you know, the fog comes in. You don't see any of this kind of nonsense because they define worship in terms of a, a feeling. And so you have to generate through dramatics this kind of feeling in your congregation so people go home and say, oh, wasn't that a wonderful, worshipful experience today? Well, what did you learn about God? Oh, he just made my heart happy. You didn't learn anything about God. God didn't convict you of sin. God didn't teach you to trust him. You just had an emotional experience. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. And see, this is what happens. So this is what this guy is describing here. He says, he says, um, it talks about the fact that they you know they have the laser lights and smoke machines to create this environment he says it is in this environment that the listener has now been made susceptible to whatever suggestions are coming from the quote preacher unquote none of what you will see at a celebration service is in line with anything you will read about in the bible about how a new testament church service should be run Nothing at that church is done decently, quote, or in order, unquote, as Paul commands. It is like a nightclub with its incessant pulsating and droning music, stunning the listener into submission. Points out 1 Corinthians 14.33, and the King James says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And not only this, he says that this church is a church, and this is also more common, is that where women are given the rank of pastor, even though Paul says this is not to be. In fact, um, he says that this pastor says that his wife is his, quote, other Holy Spirit, unquote, as well as the co-pastor of the church. And then he quotes from 1 Corinthians 14.34 that women are to keep silent, and the churches, for it is not permitted. That's a strong term. It is not permitted unto them to speak. And this isn't a cultural thing. This was what Paul was talking about, because he always grounds these arguments in the creation order. And that brings to mind another thing. There is a, a man, I think he went to Dallas Seminary, because in one of the articles I read, he had been a professional basketball player. And he um, he played in the... 80 and 81 for the Dallas Mavericks so that, quote, he could go to seminary in Dallas. Now, that tells me he probably went to Dallas Theological Seminary. But 
he comes under, in three articles I read, he is labeled an extremist radical pastor. Now, what makes him an extremist radical pastor? Well, first of all, he doesn't believe in homosexual marriage. Number two, he doesn't believe that women should be pastors or leaders in the home. Number three, he believes that the Bible should be the subject of Bible study and should be led by a pastor and that he takes, now pay attention to this, don't laugh too loud, he takes almost a year to go through many books of the Bible. Of course, I take three or four to go through any books of the Bible. He believes in verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the Word. And he is considered in these articles a radical extremist, and he's dangerous because he's leading Bible classes in the White House with cabinet members. This is the world in which we live today. Of course, those are pagan, pure pagan unbelievers writing those articles who don't understand anything about spiritual things. But the sad thing is there's a lot of pagan Christians. They they may be believers. They may have trusted in Christ and have an eternal destiny in heaven, but they they have fallen away. They have apostatized. They don't understand what is going on. So let me give you a couple of introductory principles of worship that we should keep in mind as we go through this study. First of all, God defines worship. We don't define worship. God tells us when it's worship, when it's not. It's not how we feel. It's what God thinks about it according to his standards of his word. He defines how we worship and the conditions for worship. And in the church age, we are to worship by means of the spirit and by means of truth. And those phrases are clearly spelled out and explained later in the New Testament epistles. Second, worship is not determined by how we feel. Worship is determined by our conformity to God's righteousness and his revelation. The focal point of worship is God, not me. It's not about me. It's not how I feel. It's not, did I have an encounter with God? It is, did I submit to God's word? That's the, uh, that's the focal point. That's the third point is that worship means to bow down to God. That's the core meaning of the word. Originally, it has, we'll look at the the details in a minute. Originally, it has this idea of to kiss, but you would kiss the ground as you bowed down to the king or as you bowed down to the God. And so it came to mean bowing down. It came to mean submission as you give honor and respect to the one whom you worship. It is not about the worshiper. It is all about God. And then fourth, worship has order and structure. Now that doesn't mean that there's not a room for some spontaneity, but it is within a very structured order. It is has planning and purpose because God is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And there it has the idea of stability. This is in the middle of 1 Corinthians 14, where God is, uh, where Paul is correcting the tongue-speaking, the pagan, which was a pagan way of getting to know God. It was part of uh, the, the worship of Dionysius. It's part of the worship of the... Uh, 
uh, various pagan gods and goddesses that you had uh, in in the uh, in the ancient world. The Oracle of Delphi had ecstatic utterance, and so the way in which you enter into relationship with the god or goddess was through these ecstatic utterances. And the Corinthians, who were all of maybe 20 miles from Delphi, would uh, equate the biblical miraculous speaking in languages they had not learned with this ecstatic utterance. And it led to mysticism and contributed to the whole carnal breakdown in uh, in the Corinthian church. So... Let's look at the meaning of worship. The English word derives from an old English word, worship, according to the concise Oxford English Dictionary, which is to acknowledge the value, the worth of something, to honor them. So the idea of worship is you're bringing honor and reverence to someone because of their their greatness and because of their position, whether it is a king, a ruler, or whether it is a god. The first meaning that they give is this, a feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Uh, Notice I put a question mark there. Bible never defines it as feeling, so they're they're defining it this way because that's how it's used. Remember, what you have in any dictionary are the meanings that reflect usage, not, it, they don't go someplace to say, this is what this word always and absolutely means. There's, there's no place that says this is the, the, the objective uh, benchmark for the, every term. It, and that's why you'll see these w- words change mean. Charity at the time of King James in 1601 uh, is quite different from what charity means today. Notice the fourth definition in the concise Oxford English Dictionary is an archaic definition, which means honor given in recognition of merit. That's really the meaning of worship in Scripture. It is we're honoring God. How do we honor God? Ultimately, we honor God by learning what he has revealed to us and then obeying it, submitting to it. That's what it means to bow the knee. So that's the basic meaning of the English word. It's always important whenever you're translating from one language to another to not only understand what a word means in the original language, but understand what the word means in the target language. A lot of people just say, oh, this is what Greek and Hebrew means, and they tell you what the English is, but they never really stop and define what the English words mean. So the (coughs) Hebrew word it derives from a root chava and it usually is in what is called the hishtafel stem which uh, means to prostrate yourself to worship to bow down uh, on the ground that's the core meaning and it is the expression of submission to a someone who is a higher authority it could be a king or in the case of the worship of God, it is submission to the authority of God. This is done in some different ways. For example, Genesis 22.5 is the first use of the word worship in the Old Testament. It is when Abraham is taking his son, 
Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. We keep coming back to this significant episode. And so as he leaves, he leaves his servant with the donkey, and he and Isaac are going to carry the, the wood for the sacrifice up to Mount Moriah. And he gives instructions to his servant to stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Notice he says, we will come back to you. He's supposed to be sacrificing Isaac, but he understood right there that Isaac was coming back with him. But he's going there to worship. What's he going to do? He is going to obey God. He is going to obey God by offering a sacrifice. And initially he knows he is supposed to sacrifice his son. But as we know from Hebrews, he understands that either God will provide a substitute or he will bring Isaac back from the dead. But he is going there to obey God and carry out God's command. A couple of chapters later, it, the term is used again twice in reference to Eleazar, who is the servant of a Abraham, who has been sent to find a wife for Isaac. And when he discovers Rebekah uh, after that, he bows down his head and worships the Lord. In context, he's giving thanks to God for having answered his prayer. So that is one form of worship. And notice it is bowing the head and worshiping. Two verses are actually uh, 20, 22 verses later. He says, And I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for a son. Same idea. Now when you get into the New Testament, you get into Greek, you have similar uh, meaning. The Greek word proskuneo basically means to worship, to do obeisance to, which means to obey or submit to someone, to prostrate, prostrate oneself, or do reverence to. And the first time we see it in the New Testament, it is the Magi who have come to worship uh, the infant Jesus and to bring gifts. And in Matthew 2.11, they come into the house and they see the young child and his mother and they fell down or bowed down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Another significant passage using this term is in John 4, 23 and 24, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Uh, and, and that's so significant because the Samaritans did not worship at the central sanctuary in Jerusalem. They had their alternative sanctuary, their temple that was up on Mount Gerizim. And some of you have been to Mount Gerizim with me. And uh, so that was the debate uh, between the Samaritans and the, uh, the Jews as to whether they should worship in Jerusalem or worship in uh, Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says it's not going to matter before too much longer because this, a time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, literally by means of the Spirit. It's an instrumental there. By means of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, because the whole, he's talking about the church age when the Holy Spirit will come. We're to walk by means of the Spirit, same, same grammar. Uh, we worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth, which is God's Word. As Jesus prayed in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in truth by truth. 
Thy word is truth. We are sanctified by the word of God. We're not sanctified by singing. Singing is a result of walking by the Spirit. It is not the means of spirituality. So um, Jesus goes on to say, God is Spirit, and those who worship him must worship him by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So this just lays the groundwork for us to think about this topic as we go forward. Now in verse 1 of chapter 15, we learn that at this time that they have brought the ark in for the first attempt, that David built houses for himself. He built buildings. He builds a uh, palace for himself, and he built some other buildings. Now, he had started some of that before he started to bring the ark in. We know that because the ark is only at um, the house of Obed-Edom for three months. So he can't build the palace and do all of this all at one time. So he had begun to do that. And along with preparing a place for himself, we're told that he prepared a place for the ark of God and pinched, pitched a tent for it. So there are uh, three things that are going on here. He's taking care of his own dwelling place. He's building himself a palace. Second, he prepares a place for the ark. He's not going to take the ark to Gibeon and put it, reunite it with the tabernacle. He is going to build a tent here. So he prepares a place for the ark, a location for it, and then he pitches a tent there. So the ark will reside there in Jerusalem for uh, some time. Now, there's debate as to exactly where he put it. It's it's not up on Moriah at this point, which is the uh, threshing floor of uh, Aruna the Jebusite. Some suggest, because remember when David was fleeing from Saul, the priests were at Nob, and he goes there to get bread, and um, Doeg the Edomite is is there, and then he slaughter- the Doeg is responsible for getting the priest slaughtered by Saul. That's on uh, Mount Scopus, which is where the Hebrew University is today, just uh, just to the north of the Mount of Olives, and so that is believed to be the place where where David uh, would have constructed this tent, and this is the temporary location of the Ark of the Covenant. This is where the priest community uh, was to live. Uh, the echo of this is in Second uh, Samuel six seventeen, so which is at the conclusion of our chapter. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Now the word tabernacle doesn't mean the tabernacle. The word tabernacle in Hebrew is mishkan, from the root shakan, where we get our term, where we get the term shekinah. But Shakan simply means a dwelling place, a, a, a habitable place. And it shows up in, in as a cognate in different languages. For example, uh, you have the word skene, same consonants, and it means a, a, a dwelling place. And, and we're told in John chapter 1 that the Lord tabernacled among us. That's the verb skenao. Uh, so that's that same verb. You find it, that cognate for that shows up in Russian. It shows up in several other languages, and it has that idea of, of, a, of a dwelling place. So that's all that is being said here is that David establishes a, a this tent or dwelling place uh, for the ark as a temporary location. 
And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. All of this, I think, is a summary statement of, of what has transpired in that chapter. In verse 2 we read, Then David says, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. Now this doesn't seem to affect his thinking before, since Aminadab and his sons had taken care of the ark. Uh, he, uh, he led them, and they were probably Levites, but he knows there's a problem with how the ark was transported. And he says here, no one carries the ark. See, what did he do before? He put it on a cart. Now he recognizes the Levites are to carry the ark. Uh, no one uh, can carry the ark but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. This word for minister is a Hebrew word which predominantly is used to describe the service of the priests in the tabernacle and later uh, in the in the temple. So it has that idea of serving God in uh, the ritual of the of the of the tabernacle. And in verse three, David gathers all Israel together at Jerusalem. So this is a huge deal. This is like the inauguration of a president or the gathering of at a funeral for a president. This is people will come for all over and you will have uh you know, 100,000, 200,000 people coming from around uh, Israel from the 10 tribes to witness the transportation of the ark. He is making this a huge celebration. One of the things that I have seen in my years as a pastor, as we've become more um, more laid back in a lot of things that we do and informal in things that we do, is we've lost an appreciation for the formal. And I remember this back in the 80s. I went to a couple of ordinations, and there was not much of it to do about these things because we really got into an anti-authoritarian view towards all authority, but especially, uh, you know, anybody in any individual, especially a pastor. And so you had people who wrote books that a pastor is just one of the elders. He's no better. He has no more position or... Uh, prestige than anybody else, and that's just dead wrong because he's been gifted with the gift of pastor-teacher. He is the gifted leader of the congregation. That doesn't mean he's a dictator, doesn't mean he's a tyrant, but he's been specially gifted by God, and that gift needs to be developed, and it needs to be trained and recognized, and we call that an ordination. And I remember um, going to a couple of ordinations, including my own, although the pastor uh, who ordained me, Harry Leaf at Tomball Bible Church, did bring in a special speaker, and there was more of a formal setting. But the the um, the ordination interview and interrogation was just private. I was with the um, with the elders of the of the church, and we sat in a room, and they asked me questions. Whereas later, when I was when I was at Baraka. Uh, we did ordinations, and I think that's how it should be done. The congregation was invited to come and listen to the interrogation. There, there were other pastors who were invited to participate in the questioning and uh, of the candidates. And so it was something that everybody saw, and it reinforced to the congregation the significance of ordination, 
that this is truly setting apart a man who has been gifted by God to teach the word of God and to lead a congregation. And there was pomp and circumstance, not because these people were important, but because the mission and the gifting was significant and as such needed to uh, be dealt with by people uh, in re- with respect. And so that's the kind of thing you have here. This is something, we're, we're not just going to put the ark on the back of a Ford pickup truck and haul it up to the to Mount Scopus. This is going to, to be a huge celebration. That's another aspect of worship is, is celebration. And so all of Israel comes together and it's going to be organized and it's going to be structured and it's going to be planned. And in order to show that the, the high level of significance that this has, David reorganizes the, the Levites. He's going to organize them for in terms of an orchestra. This was a huge orchestra. This isn't just, you know, a, a, a small a group of eight or nine pieces. I mean, it's going to be a huge orchestra, probably several hundred that were involved. That in, that means you have to have rehearsals and organization and structure and planning. And then you have a choir that is going to sing psalms. And the same thing, you have to train, you have to uh, discipline the people, you have to rehearse. All of those things uh, come together. And so this is the second thing that takes place is that David organizes the Levites for the movement of the ark. And this is where we'll stop tonight. We'll get into this and, and <clears throat> we'll get, go through these, these verses from 4 through 10. You look at them and you just read a bunch of names and you don't know their significance. But the Bible records these names for a reason. And so we'll tie that together next time, but we'll come back and begin to lay this groundwork for why we need to have a structured, organized worship, and that most of what is going on today under the guise of contemporary worship, which is in 90% of the churches, is really a blend of paganism, a paganistic worldview, pagan philosophy undergirding the music, and a pagan philosophy that undergirds the whole idea of their whole definition of what worship is as something that is all about me and not all about God. So we'll come back to that next Tuesday night. Father, we thank you for this time to come together to reflect upon who you are, the greatness of your being, uh, your holiness, the fact that you are totally distinct from anything and everything that we can imagine, that you have provided for us in such a rich way our salvation and that you are to be honored uh, in a way that goes beyond what we would do for honoring any human being because we recognize that you are the creator God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Father, we pray that you can help us think carefully about how we honor you and how we glorify you because this is not something that is to be confused with what happens in any other realm of our of our life or our our experience. And Father, we need to always remember that our life is to serve you, to honor you, and to glorify you, and it's all about you and not about us. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.